our series, Radical Choices, has been part of a, a larger thing that we've been doing around the life of the Apostle Paul. We've spent times in the last couple of years talking about his conversion and his transformation and his early part as a, a life as a leader. And now we've sort of been tracing his, his next stages. And we've also been simultaneously looking at the, the emergence of the early church through the book of Acts. And, you know, I know a lot of this, for some of us, it's almost going to have a, a kind of, there's a historical component to this. Part of what we're doing is we're actually looking at how, you know, the church wrestled with its identity and what happened in these critical years after the resurrection and ascension of Christ. Um, there was a formation that takes place and uh, it has a lot to do with people and even some things like conflict. And so the, the underlying theme of this series has to do with, with also conflict and choice. And that's a part of our real life. So not only is there a benefit in sort of knowing the roots of what we believe, because so much of the New Testament is connected to some of the things that we're going to be looking at. I mean, a lot of the things that um, will, will be alluded to in the epistles and the New Testament books, that, particularly the ones that Paul writes, are connected to concepts. And, you know, I think they invite us to have an understanding of what actually was happening and what, what certain things mean. So, because a lot of times, you know, we, we may say we love Jesus and we say we want to follow him, but if we don't have a working knowledge of, of just the history of, of our church and how, it, I mean, I'm talking about the, what it means to, to follow Jesus, it, it can somehow, you know, disconnect us from something that goes back all the way back to, to Jesus' you know, moment when he walked on this earth. And then to be able to apply that to our lives. So we're going to be applying it because a lot of our life is lived around conflict. We have choices we make. There are challenges we face. A lot of that has to do with people. And so um, we, maybe some of us get to these crossroads in our lives where we've got to make decisions. We need to look at some of that, sit with it, try to apply what we're learning. So let's start by looking at Acts 15. Um, we're going to sort of jump back into where we left off. I'm just going to read very quickly through uh, these first two verses. It says, while Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judah, Judea arrived and began to teach the believers, unless... You are circumcised as required by the law of Moses. You cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles. They were having a, they're going to have a council. Talk to the apostles and elders about this question. Now, again, just putting everything up on a map so we can get an idea of the geography of what we're talking about. Real places, um, Antioch of Syria, it was an amazing thing that happened there for the first time in the history of the world. A church of believers, a community of believers in Jesus had broken out that was not either exclusively or predominantly Jewish. Up until this time, the early church was almost exclusively Jewish in its identity, its cultural identity. The church in Jerusalem, uniformly so. Uh, people, even Gentiles who came to faith would have made a transition into Jewish culture. But what was happening is the church was exploding in the Gentile community up north. But they weren't becoming Jewish. They weren't being circumcised. They weren't actually participating in some of the Mosaic law. I'm going to talk about that. As a result, it created a controversy. And this controversy became so intense that the church in Antioch, upon being told that even some of them weren't, they weren't even saved, some people were saying that, felt like this had to be dealt with. So they send a delegation back, Paul and Barnabas, back down to have this discussion. Now, you've got to understand, the church is at a huge crossroads. A decision has to be made. They really have to figure this thing out because, on the one hand, you have a contingent of people who are saying, essentially, 
that anyone who really comes to faith in Jesus has to also come in through, you know, the door, if you will, the entry place of Judaism. They saw the, the way of Jesus as under the larger umbrella of the, you know, Jewish heritage. And so in their mind, um, you know, you, you had to become Jewish, just like Gentiles had done for generations. And then all of a sudden, there's this other group developing that is saying, led by, ironically, the former Pharisee himself, Paul, who had once been so fiercely opposed to the way of Jesus and knew a lot of the people who held the other position. But he was saying, with, a, with also a group of leaders, like his partner and ministry partner Barnabas and even Peter, that uh, that was not the case, that what you were actually doing was overlaying um, something onto the Gentiles that God did not require. This was about faith in Jesus, and that some of the old things, some of them, had to be let go of, that it was absolutely unfair um, and inappropriate, he would take it one step further, to insist that Gentiles lose their cultural identity to become a follower of Jesus. In his mind, that you know, th what was at stake here was, how is the church going to proceed? Is it going to proceed in a cross-cultural manner that seeks to take the message of Jesus and sort of work within the context of a culture, fulfilling what Jesus said about going to the uttermost parts of the world? Or was it going to become this very localized, narrow expression? And so they had to wrestle with this. This was a huge controversy. And to appreciate some of the things we're going to look at is going to be really helpful in understanding the larger things that happened um, down, honestly, throughout history. And so what we see here is that the church, look at verse 3, the church sent the delegates to Jerusalem, and they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. Again, looking at that map, you see where the region of Samaria is. It's in the, in the orange there. Um, there, were, there was evidently a, a number of believers who were Samaritan. Samaritans were not fully Jewish. They were a mixed ethnicity. It's interesting because they were absolutely rejoicing in the fact that there was a... a a large community of Gentiles, completely non-Jewish people, who were starting to follow Jesus, and where God was clearly active. Because maybe for them, they had also felt some of the tension that had to do with maybe not completely fitting in to the dominant culture in Judea, in, Judea, in Jerusalem. And so they, they were actually really encouraging to Paul and Barnabas. They said, that's wonderful, that's amazing. How good is that? So that, we're told, was a place that they stopped, and then they continued down south. Look what it says here. They eventually, they arrived in Jerusalem, verse 4. Barnabas and Paul then were welcomed by the whole church. They're going to see what's going on here. All the entire large church of Jerusalem, with its two expansive wings, its really intensely Jewish wing, the Hebrew wing, of believers in Jesus, and another, what we would call a, you know, Hellenistic wing, a, a, a wing of, of Jewish believers in Jesus who were very at ease with Greek culture, Gentile culture, and they had come together in this large expression of a church in Jerusalem. And they gathered to hear this um, council meeting and to also hear the report that Paul and Barnabas were giving, Barnabas and Paul and the other contingent that had come with them. And it says that, that when they got there, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed. So their initial, their initial feeling was, it's so great to see you. Now, you've got to remember, now, Paul, for him, this must have been one of those moments that you and I, you and I might have from time to time where you, you, you haven't been to a place in a little while and you come back, but the, there are spots where, that are filled with memories for you. For him to walk through the streets of Jerusalem would have meant so much. It's where he had been formed in his in his uh, Pharisee life. It's where he had been trained as the rising star 
of Gamaliel. These streets, he knew them well. He had walked them numerous times. He, is, he knew the smells. He knew the spots where people would talk and have extensive discourse around the things of God. He perhaps, you know, because you can still go to Jerusalem a day, and there's something about walking through the streets of Jerusalem. You feel connected to thousands and thousands of years of history. It's like the dust and the, on those rocks speak of ancient times that are so close to us. And Paul's walking down those same streets. And he, maybe he came along the way to that very spot where he remembered in his mind's eye, and I've talked about this before, where he had sat as a, this very smug, self-righteous Pharisee of Pharisees and watched an angry mob of people that he had supported. Although he never lifted a stone, he had watched as they stoned to death Stephen, who had been a bit of a rival to him and the first real outspoken follower of Jesus who was confrontational. And they watched he watched Stephen stoned to death with a kind of smug approval. And uh, now, how's the irony of it all? Here he was, you know, years removed. 20 years have passed since the resurrection of Christ approximately. And here he is now gone from the most significant opponent and hater of the way of Jesus, the bulwark of its opposition to this new way, to now he is a representative of that very thing that he had once despised. It's remarkable. He's coming to connect in a very different way. And he's now had a number of years of experience, and he's witnessed God do amazing things in foreign lands. He's watched God break out in Gentile communities that had never heard about the message of Jesus. He's, he's, he really has been, been transformed in his conception of what God can do through Christ. And then, and then you have Barnabas with him. Barnabas, again, his first real mission, ministry partner, we, we may sometimes forget how highly esteemed Barnabas would have been. Barnabas was not just anybody. He was one of the original members and founders, leaders in the early church. When it first starts in Jerusalem, Barnabas emerges as an apostle, actually, is what he's described as. Someone who was extraordinarily regarded for his gentleness, his kindness, his generosity, his spirit sensitivity. Barnabas was esteemed. He was, remember, the one who first put his arm around Saul, before he becomes Paul and says, I believe in you. I believe that you, are, you have been changed. You're changing. And I'm going to use all of my influence to sponsor you with the rest of this believing community. He put his own reputation on the line for Paul. Barnabas is coming here. Oh, by the way, when Barnabas and Saul come here, it's Barnabas who probably holds the position of higher esteem. He's the one that, that many of them feel most comfortable with. He's the one that has the, the stronger reputation. That's important because it'll serve as a bit of a backdrop to what we're about to see here. They're welcomed in, and what does it say they did? We're told that they repeated everything, uh, all the amazing things that God had done through them. So they start talking about what had happened on Cyprus when the Roman proconsul, uh, you know, Sergius Paulus, who many people believe was the occasion for Paul shifting his name from Saul to Paul, that first significant Gentile convert, opened up his life to Jesus. That, their, their experiences in Cyprus and then talked about Antioch of, of Pisidia and Iconium and Derby and Lystra and all the things that happened in these places and, and how Paul almost died, was left for dead and dragged out of the city. But yet there were many people who believed and how they eventually made their way back to all of those communities and how they're actually still going on and how God done amazing things. And people were listening. You can, again, imagine in our mind's eye, everybody's gathered. The elders, the leaders, a lot of the apostles are there. People who've been with Jesus walked with him, 
highly esteemed group of people there and an extensive community are gathered. They're here listening and everybody's kind of like fascinated and you can hear a buzz. There's they're talking about what God has done in the Gentiles. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of what had been a pretty remarkable exchange and, and reporting of what had transpired, all of a sudden we're told that there was an interruption. And a group, a contingent of men, get up in the middle of the meeting and say this. Let's look at it together. In verse 5 it says, But some of the believers, these were believers, who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees, they, were, they had been part of the, religious, the, the very strict religious party of the Pharisees, but they had come to a belief in Jesus as Savior, Yeshua as their Savior, right? They had come to a belief that he was indeed the Messiah, but they had retained all the other aspects of their Jewish life, of their strict adherence to the law of Moses and their fierce defense of that law. So essentially what they still believe, and they say it here, they go, they, they get up in the middle of this, this great you know, sharing of what God's doing in the Gentile community, they get up, and we can see a large number of them standing up, and they had tremendous influence, and they were highly educated, very intellectual men standing up with a lot of power. Paul knew them well. He knew them well. And they said, look, these Gentile converts that you're talking about, he says, look, they, you know they must be circumcised. They must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. Now, we look at that, and we go, what, what, what are they getting at? What, what's the big deal here? What's happening? And in fact, I will say this, that you know, what in their mind, what they were saying was, these Gentiles cannot just leapfrog in. They're going to have to come through. They believed in, males, in adult male is being circumcised, just like any other male Gentile had to do when they came into the Jewish community and the synagogue. Nothing has changed. The only thing that's changed is we confess Jesus as Messiah. Everything else is the same. That was their mindset. Now, then, because it was like a cup of cold water that just blew negativity right into the, all this wonderful stuff that's being shared, and all of a sudden they stand up and they say, no, 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 no. This can't do. We appreciate all the nice things that are happening, but you've forgotten something. Now, again, before we just write them off, and this will be a temptation, as just this like group of narrow-minded bigots. Okay. I want us to, at least for a moment, try to appreciate how they saw things. This really helps me. You've got to understand, the law of Moses, you read about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but the Moses, to Moses was given the law of God, the words of God. The law of Moses was, in their mind, the centerpiece of their national life. And circumcision, male circumcision, was something that even predated the law. It was like the cornerstone of the law. So the, the gift of Moses, Moses, given to Moses was the law from God, God's very words. And, and, the, and the cornerstone of that law was the rite of circumcision went all the way back to Father Abraham before they were even a people, how God made a promise that they would, out of his, the seed of Abraham would come a mighty nation and a mighty people, a people that would extend all the way through the world's you know, and through time, a promise was made. And part of what he said you are to do to set yourself apart was to circumcise all the males in your household as a sign of your separation unto God. So in their mind's eye, you've got to remember also what had happened, that, that this commitment to the law that they had had held, listen, it had held them together in a way that was absolutely incredible. When they were taken captive, as many peoples were, and shuttled off to foreign lands by mighty military powers who were essentially attempting to completely 
um, erase them from the face of the earth. That it was their commitment to the law and to their identity as a people of God that had held them together. For them, it was a huge issue, right? It not only, it not only gave them a, a moral center, but it also was the key to their enduring identity. So we, you know, again, and then, and so they saw the law as a gift of God to the Jewish people and vicariously or indirectly to the entire world. So in their mind, it would have been critical. And then on top of that, and they would have pulled out this card as well, their best one. They would have said, and you know, Jesus himself, the one we follow, he believed in the law. He said that he did not come to destroy it, but to fulfill it, that's important. You know that he himself had been circumcised. Jesus, he himself attended the synagogue regularly. He went to this very, he went to the temple in Jerusalem. That was part of his life. We're not, look, he basically is saying, look, he kept the Passover. To, to, to somehow, to say that he dishonored the law and the prophets, you would be undermining what he clearly said he did not come to do. He honored the law. He honored the prophets. We are only saying what Jesus said. That was their rationale. And George, but, you know, there's a, there's a commentator that I really love. He, he said this, you could no more root Jesus from the soil of his Jewish ancestry than you could uproot a flower from the soil and expect it to live. And what they were saying was, you cannot disconnect these two things. Now, for me, at, at least it's helpful to understand their perspective. Paul knew it, heard it, so did Peter. They were all listening. They didn't diminish it completely, but you know what they said? But you're wrong. You're wrong in this way. Not because the law was not from God and not good, but you're wrong because God is moving in a new way. It's like God is, is it's not dishonoring the old. It's like, it's like, yes, everything we are doing now is rooted in the old, but God is doing a new thing through Jesus Christ. And Paul said, I of all people would know this because I did not hold to that position, but I have witnessed with my own eyes. And when God called me, and he's almost going to say, it was by revelation, he showed me that it is not by works that we do, but it is by a different type of circumcision, the circumcision of the heart. It's not by works of righteousness and the keeping of the law. There are some things of it that need to be honored. Yes, no question about it. But he would say it is by the law of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And he would change, they would, and they would, and you know what, look what happens, by the way. It says that as they're having this discussion, um, waiting, it's, look what it says. It says, so the apostles and the elders, they gather together, verse 6, and the, to, to resolve this issue. We must counsel together to hear what God wants us to do at this critical juncture. We want to hear from the Lord. We need his direction on this matter. And so many things are riding on it. We need to come to a consensus as to what God wants us to do. This is critical. And look what it says. One of the first things that happens is after the meeting, after a long discussion, finally, we're told, verse 7, Peter. Peter stands up. And he makes a statement. It's a bit of a summary statement. It says that he stands and he addresses them as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles. He's talking about the experience he had in Acts 10 earlier when, uh, some of us may remember this. It's worth reading it again if you haven't read it. If you've never read it, it's even better. Because he has this, he's in this house and he's, having, he's in a prayer 
session. He has this vision. He sees this sheet coming down with a lot of unclean animals, which would have been totally forbidden uh, for him based on the dietary law of the law of Moses. And, in, and he, in his dream, his vision, he says, well, he hears this voice, slay and eat. He says, no, I don't do that. Slay and eat, no. And then he has this exchange. By the time he's done, there's, a, there's someone who's coming to talk to him about a Roman centurion named Cornelius. Before it's all said and done, he, Cornelius ends up, ends up experiencing the Holy Spirit and completely gives his life to Christ. And Peter recognizes that God has just broken his paradigm completely, like blew it up. What he thought was very narrow, what he had been raised as a very kind of closed system, all of a sudden God is saying there's a new thing happening here. For Peter, he had not forgotten that. He struggled at times with that. Because remember, he doesn't have a, he's not a multicultural man. Paul was raised around Greek culture. It'd be like he was comfortable in the West, right? If you could think of it in our terms. But Peter was not. He was very parochial. He, he, had like a, he was raised in Galilee. He was not exposed to philosophies. His, his training came with Jesus. He's very much in, in, a, in a worldview that is almost exclusively Hebrew. And so for him, it's actually a huge deal. But he's going, I get it. I see that God is doing a new thing. He says, look, God knows. Look at verse 8. God knows people's hearts. He confirmed that. He accepts the Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. I can't argue that fact. He made no distinction between us and them. He cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with this yoke that you know neither we nor our ancestors, because they had added things to the law and requirements and details, traditions, all kinds of things. And he says, you know a lot of this stuff is onerous and difficult, and a lot of us don't even do it. And now we're trying to lay that on to them. Stop it. Don't do that. He says, I'll tell you, I don't believe that's what God wants. He says, no, we believe that we are all saved the same way. By the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. It's a gift. You don't earn a gift. You receive it and respond. You don't earn it to get it. And everybody listen quietly. Pondering. You could feel it in the room. Then we're told something else happens. Notice the order. It's a reminder of who probably did the lead speaking in this moment. It says, Barnabas and Paul, get up. And Barnabas says, I also want to affirm what Peter just said, and I need to tell you how God affirmed the same things with us when we went to the Gentiles. We went to these, these you know, non-Jewish populations who had never heard anything of Jesus, barely had any idea of what we were actually talking about, and we watched God open up their heart to Jesus and did it through amazing signs and wonders as well. I, we say the same thing Peter said. Do we know what else happens? And this was a critical thing, and I didn't have enough room in the handout to put it all in there. But if you read Acts 15, the recognized essential leader of the church was, was James, the half-brother of Jesus, who had not been a believer in Jesus. He, like Paul, had not believed in Jesus, it appears, until after the resurrection. He, be, he becomes a man noted for his prayer. He becomes a man also who was well-connected with even the non-believing dominant Jerusalem leadership. So he has a great relationship with them. And he is more sympathetic to the more rigid orthodox view James is. But James even recognizes that the Lord is doing something that he cannot oppose. And he's got a, a big enough heart to push past his own limitation. He says, Here, here's what I think the, whole, the whole Holy Spirit is saying. He quotes from the book of Amos. 
and he talks a little bit about it. He says, we've, we've come to this conclusion. I put this up there. These two verses on their own, their own, they seem very obscure. But he basically says three things. He says, this is what I believe. We are not to lay a, a bunch of things on the Gentiles. They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to keep the, the law. But they do need to do a few things. This is what we've come to the conclusion. We feel like God is directing us in this matter. On the, on the one hand, he basically says, look, I want them to be able to make sure that they don't eat meats and foods that have been offered to idols. Well, you go, why would they say, what was the big deal? Because he says that has actually spiritual implications. And we believe that actually that when you engage in idolatry and participate in it, that there's actually more happening there than even meets the eye. So what we're going to ask is these new Gentile believers, um, we want, one of the things we want them to do is to, is to is stop getting in, you know, overlapping into their pagan past. Also, as it pertains to sexual morality, we want them to pull back from what is the dominant uh, cultural conception of, of acceptable um, sexual morality and expression, and we want them to live a more honoring life in alignment with the things of God. And then thirdly, uh, one that seems very odd, we want them also to, to, so in other words, we want them to live a bit counterculturally in these regards, and then we also want them to not eat meats that have been offered, uh, you know, uh, and get strangled, and, and there's blood, and what they're talking, you're saying, what are they talking about? Well, they're talking about, actually, we want them to have um, some respect, at least a little bit, for their, their Jewish brethren who hold the positions that that would be inappropriate from a diet standpoint. Have them to, to not be so um, uncaring that they just simply engage freely in these things. Let them be respectful, at least of some modest expression of, of cultural and of commitment to the law. Can you, can you do that? Now look what happens. This is what it says, and this is on the other side. This I did put in there, I squeezed in there, all right. It says that the apostles and the elders together with the whole church in Jerusalem chose delegates and they sent them to Antioch of Syria with Paul and Barnabas to report on this decision. The men chosen were two of the church's leaders, Judas, who's also called Barsabbas, and Silas, who will become Paul's next ministry partner, it says, this is the letter they took with them. It basically said these things. This letter is from the apostles and the elders. Your brothers, your brothers in Jerusalem. It is written to the Gentile believers in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. We understand that some men from here have troubled you and upset you with their teaching. We did not send them. <laughs> I like that. All right. So we decided, having come to the complete agreement. Wow to send you official representatives along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. These men, by the way, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus. We are sending Judas and Silas to confirm what we have decided concerning your question. Here's the result of this council. We seemed, look what they say. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than then these basically few essential requirements. You must abstain from the eating of foods offered to idols, from consuming blood or meat of strangled animals, from sexual immorality. You know, if you do these things, these very basic agreements, um, you would do well. You would do well. Farewell. Blessings to you. And the messengers went at once to Antioch where they called a general meeting of the believers. They called the church together. They delivered this letter. And there was great joy throughout the church that day as they read this encouraging message. How good is that? Everybody was really pleased. So that's the lesson. Here's how I like us to think about applying it. I'm going to suggest a couple of things. First off, I'm going to suggest that there are some problems in life, relationships, that are so intense, problematic, issues you can't get around. It's almost impossible to move on until we resolve them. Now, some of us may be dealing with that right now. 
It's, you know, and again, the, the, the church here is really at a crossroads. They need to decide. They, they don't have the luxury of not deciding. And we get to these places in life where it just becomes so clear, we have to deal with this. You know, I, I, you know from a leadership you know, perspective, there are some problems that I might try to deal with by just seeing if they'll dissipate and I don't react to them. Um, a lot of things that are huge, sometimes issues, through strategic, um, a strategic decision not to react, they take care of themselves. That, but that's one way of problem solving. You know that, right? <laughs> but a lot of times when we do that, it doesn't just dissipate. If anything, it starts to gain momentum. At that moment, we are back into a position where we cannot ignore this problem. Again, it may be in our house, it may be in a relationship, it may be on our work, maybe in our own heart. But we're at a point where it keeps coming up now, it's not just going away, and now we have, we're at a crossroads. We've got to deal with this. In those moments, it's, it's really, because that's exactly where the church was. It, it was. it was in a spot where they couldn't get out. To, to not decide is essentially to decide. It's, it, they, they can't ignore. They can only, you can only defer for so long. You've got to act. Here's what I want to suggest. Just put this out there. It's been really helpful for me through the years as a follower of the Lord. Is that when we do, how can I say this? If we're willing to seek God's will, he will help us move forward. He will show us the way forward. Um, that's kind of how the Lord does things in our lives. They were, they were in a spot where they needed God to guide them. Because they were having differing viewpoints. How do I, and how, do they re, how are they supposed to go here? Which way do we go? How do we know? Which move do I make? I got to make one now. It's the fork in the road. I got to go. I can't do them. Can't do it. It's coming now. I got to go. One way or the other. I say, you know, in those moments, and a lot of times, here's the thing. We may find ourselves at a place, and if you're like me, a lot of times, you know, we might be hesitant to ask God. Because we kind of maybe know in our mind what we think he's going to tell us. So... And we know that if, if we hear what we think we're going to hear, we're probably going to require courage to do something that we may or may not want to do. So we just kind of don't deal with it. <laughs> and so I don't, I, don't really, I don't really seek him to know because I have an idea of what he might say, and I don't want to do it. <laughs> I'm being honest. But I'm going to tell you this. The Lord's way is the best way. It's the way of life. It's the way of blessing. David said, you will show me the way that I should go. We may think sometimes that it's the hard way. It may cost us some things, but I sure, I, I'm absolutely certain that when we go God's way, at these crossroad moments, he is going to bless us in different, maybe not the way we think it's supposed to go. I, I'm not saying it, it's all nice and neat, but I'm going to say in the long arch, the Lord is with us. We never lose going God's way, ever, ever. I look at this and I say, okay, they're, they're trying to figure this out, Lord. They're at, a, they're at this crossroad. They're reasoning together. They're trying to figure out, they, what do they do? Look what they did. It's a clue to how we can also decipher God's plan at times. They, they have prayer. They have discussion. Um, they actually make room for the trusted voices. It's interesting to me. Peter... Barnabas, James, they're, giving, they're given, they're given uh, a, a higher level of, of prominence in the discussion. 
So, because they're trusted, proven voices. And that's a clue a lot of times for us discerning what the Lord is saying. You, if, if we can, that's the value, by the way, of doing the relational work in a, in a community. That's why we, we talk about small groups and then out of that context, close friendships who are essentially challenging one another to follow Christ in more, in, in more how would I say, intentional ways. Because when we do that, what happens is we create the ability to have a framework for discerning what God is saying. We pray, we think, we discuss, um, we listen to counsel, and a lot of times we'll have a sense of what God, where God wants to move us. Now, here's the last thing I'll say about that, and it's connected to this as well. There are going to be these moments, you guys, in life where we're going to have to decipher what is essential and what is not. All right? What areas re require in this moment flexibility and what areas require tenacity? Um, this is not a one-size-fits-all application. There are times where, you know, because look, there are times, and we've seen this, where the Lord is really going to call us to, to have a, a degree of openness to change into new things. That what he's going to challenge us around, just like he was challenging the early church, was to, to not get too boxed in on non-essentials, that they were going to miss the larger thing that God was doing. You see that? So on the, so on the one hand, there are times where the Lord is going to call us to places of flexibility. But there's also, and, we, and we've all seen the damage that occurs when people are too rigid. I've, I've, I've known that someone may be very sincere, like, like some of these men were, but because of their sincerity and their zeal, uh, that rigidity caused a lot of wounding in people. And um, there, there is this point where, where someone, and, many, and many, that, many of us have experienced that. I've talked to a lot of people who they're not even, they're barely interested in even checking back into Jesus because they were so wounded by someone's rigid, graceless approach that it sort of, they, they felt like that can't be, that can't be right. And, I, and they, they're, in a way, pushed away, all right? But, the, but let me, but there's also a point where we become so accommodating that we end up being almost irrelevant. And what I love about the church is, in, in the leadership there, is that they walked this really beautiful fine line that looked a lot like Jesus to me. It was this delicate balance of grace and truth. It wasn't like a moral free-for-all. They were still calling them to live a restrained, God-honoring life. At the same time, that was sensitive to others who had different scruples. At the same time, it wasn't rigid. It was, it was graceful. It was a, see, see how beautiful tension that is? And there are times where the Lord is going to call, listen to me, just hear me out on this one. There are times, depending on our situation, where God's going to, sometimes our challenge is going to be, you need to have grace here. And there are other times where God's going to say, you know what, everything in you wants to just, like, go along, but maybe you need to, in your own way, hold to something and be steadfast. It, it may not always be easy to be countercultural, you see? So whatever it is, God will call us to places of surrender, though. And um, as we think about these last minutes we're going to share, because we have a song we're going to share, it has a lot to do with surrender. Like, Lord, I want you to have my life. In these crossroad moments, I want to... I, in fact, this is how I'd like us to think. After, our, after we have our, our time of giving, when we share this song, I want us to maybe think about other areas in our own lives where God's really saying, you know what? Trust me here. Yield this to me. Let me walk with you in this. All right? Let's pray together. All right, you guys? Let's do that. Lord, I, I ask for your blessing. I, I pray that as we close out this time with our song, our time of giving, I pray that you would be honored in it, but also that you would speak to our hearts about areas. Like this would be a prayer for us to close with, a prayer, uh, like a prayer of surrender, 
that would say, Lord, I'm open. Help me to be courageous. Um, I, I pray for this blessing over all of us. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.